before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. My administration will be focused on three very important words. Jobs, jobs, jobs. This must be a minister, a social worker, a diplomat, a tough guy, and a gentleman. And of course he'll have to be a genius because he'll have to feed a family on a policeman's salary. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. We, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. Because today, we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another, or from one party to another. But we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. Hold on to your seats. Buckle up for safety. You are now entering another dimension with The Scott Adams Show. That's right. My name is Scott Adams. You're listening to The Scott Adams Show. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. And, and today is Friday, so uh, today is the day I, I'm joined by Leonor Cavoda. Hello, Leonor. It's also Good Friday. And it's uh, the day we're going to bring back the uh, uh, literary corner. So it's, so it's a good day. Yeah. So what are we going to be talking about today? We are going literary- to speak about Charles Dickens today. Charles Dickens, that's what you promised last week when we didn't We did it because it. we were too busy talking about Donald J. Trump, so yeah. who we still talk about, but we'll talk about Charles Dickens today. Yeah, so the, you're going to cover Great Expectations and a really super wonderful article that you wrote over at spectator.org, okay. right? So and we'll, we'll touch and we'll touch on some of his other work too. All right, sounds good. Yeah, like Christmas Carol, but that's yeah, not we Christmas. all love a Christmas Carol. We're about any to time head into of the summer. year, any time of the year, a Christmas Carol is is relevant. It's getting warm. True, it's getting warmer. Um, all right, so uh, you know, uh, one of the big stories that happened in the last twenty four hours is the Afghanistan report, and that is really looking pretty bad for. Um, the uh, the White House, the, the the Biden administration, they want to blame Trump for all the the failures of their Afghanistan withdrawal, and so we have a uh, a clip that I want to share with you. Uh, we have several clips actually, but on this subject, um, I'm hesitant to, to to play them all actually, um, but I do want to get to a couple. Uh, one was. Basically, the uh, exchange of Peter Ducey, and uh, he he basically um, called the administration out on the carpet. Like, who is there going to be any accountability? There never is accountability about these things. That's the problem. Is there just never is accountability? No heads ever roll in Washington, and that's the sad, sad truth. Um, President Trump weighed in on these things. He said, uh, in his truth, these morons in the White House who are systematically destroying our country, headed up by the biggest moron of them all, hopeless Joe Biden, 
have a new disinformation game they are playing. Blame Trump for their grossly incompetent surrender in Afghanistan. I watched this disaster unfold just like everyone else. I saw them take out the military first. Give $85 billion of military equipment to the Taliban. Allow killing of our soldiers and leave Americans behind. Biden is responsible. No one else. And that's, uh, that's exactly what happened. You don't withdraw the troops and then try to make an exit. Right. And rely on the Taliban to secure an airport. I mean, it was stupid from start to finish. The morons at the State Department that were running the show over here, and you got Jake Sullivan and Susan Rice, holdovers from the Obama administration, didn't know what the heck was going on. Um, Donald Trump also took a time to... Talk about the country as a whole. He said the good old USA is losing so much so fast that at the end of the one and a half years remaining in the most incompetent administration in history, we may not even have a country left. There's an invasion at our border. We're about to lose our dollar as the world standard, and we could, because of stupid people, end up in World War III. The only things they do well is cheating on elections, disinformation campaigns, and weaponizing the justice system. We are a nation in decline, a failing nation. And that's so true. And meanwhile, the guy that is speaking the truth is getting rewarded at the polls, and I'm telling you, the way you can beat election fraud is with independent pollsters basically showing that Trump has a 40% lead and having their data empirically tested. And that means that if there is some sort of a an anomaly on Election Day, it would be squarely uh, faced with the accusation, a real accusation of fraud. There's no way you could actually be wrong by 40%. And I think that the Biden administration is so bad that they're going to be losing in poll numbers by the tune of 40%. Well, in this case, in 2024, the 2024 post-indictment GOP primary state polling has Texas, Trump up 52% to DeSantis 20%. So that's a 32% uh, lead. Massachusetts, Trump 45, DeSantis 21. And, and uh, Haley is nine. Uh, in Texas, it's Trump, DeSantis, and Pence. In Utah, it's Trump, 41, DeSantis, 23, an 18-point lead, and Pence at 10. And with Iowa, Trump at 41, and DeSantis at 26. I mean, these aren't even close anymore. The spread is going in favor of Trump. There's a Trump bump. Yeah, there's a Trump bump. So that's that's quite good. And um, all right, so I want to get to... A couple of uh, different things here. We're going to get to a couple of clips where John Kirby sends a message to Americans on withdrawal from Afghanistan. Was the right thing to do, he says. What message it said. Right here. You have for the people around the world who don't look which administration made mistakes or failed but lost some confidence 
in the United States' ability to deal with such difficult situations as in Afghanistan? I would encourage them to look at what we have been able to achieve in the two-plus years of this administration uh, across the board. Um, and as I said, even in Afghanistan, because ending that war was the right thing to do for this country and our national security interests. We are on a stronger strategic footing. We are better able to deal with the most pressing challenges of the day, which are not quite, by the way, emanating out of Afghanistan, certainly not anymore, uh, because we are no longer in <laughs> Afghanistan. Um, and take a look at the incredible leadership of the United States in support for Ukraine. Take a look at the NATO alliance, which now just got a new member. Um, take a look at the strengthening of alliances and partnerships in the Indo-Pacific, the new AUKUS deal with Australia and the UK, and the ability for them to, the Australians now, to get a, a nuclear power submarine. I could go on and on and on. The president has prioritized alliances and partnerships. Did you hear all that? I did. So he just talks about the uh, Australian submarine, yeah. right? Okay, so let's just, let's just dissect what he just said. The Australian deal of... We not only did we uh, stiff France out of that deal. Mm-hmm. I recall right? we 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 um, turned a NATO ally like France against us on that. We totally stabbed them in the back. On they had that deal, they had that contract, and we stole that from them. And guess what? This boneheadedly stupid Kirby. Guess what? He's not saying. He's not saying that. The country that eats Australia's lunch every day and Sunday is China. And don't think for one second that they're not going to get all of our nuclear submarine secrets as a result of that particular military contract. That's the sad news about it. And let's take a listen to this again. Right here. Uh, Across the board. Um, And as I said even in Afghanistan, because ending that war was the right thing to do for this country and our national security. Yeah, but not giving $85 billion in assets to Taliban. That's number one. They should have never done that. We are on a stronger strategic footing. We are better able to deal with the most pressing challenges of the day, which are not quite, by the way, emanating out of Afghanistan. Certainly not anymore, uh, because we are no longer in (laughs) Afghanistan. Um, and take a look at the incredible leadership of the United States in support for Ukraine. Ukraine. Yeah. That's another one, right? He said a mouthful yeah. here. So Ukraine is a war that could have easily been avoided. And in fact, it could have been done almost like with a magic wand. Yeah. And the reason why that could have been is because it was Donald Trump. It was Donald Trump that actually wanted to bring Russia into the G7 and make it a G8 again. Yep. And if we would have done that, then we wouldn't be losing the dollar as a standard. But because we started this war, and then he talks about NATO expansion. That's Finland, right? So they brought Finland in, which is more agitation against Russia. We blew up a a Nord Stream pipeline, and the United States did that. Cy Hirsch was right. And so we have clips on all of this stuff. Let's let's take a listen. So this is... um, this, this right here is the Finland piece, and this is Jeffrey Sachs talking about the NATO expansion that Kirby right there was bragging about. I think it would be so reckless and provocative at this moment, rather than having some prudence and 
pushing on the diplomatic line to get Russia out of Ukraine and to agree that NATO is not going to enlarge into Ukraine. You know, halfway around the world in a tiny little island in the Pacific, uh, in the Solomon Islands, the Solomon Islands uh, has drafted a security pact with China. It's a tiny island. And yet the United States is going out of its mind, sending senior national security officials to the Pacific. How dare you sign this thing? The threat that this poses. You know, this is how America feels about a small right. island signing a security pact with China. But then when it comes to the United States pushing into Ukraine in NATO, we say, well, why is Russia concerned about that at all? And what we're doing by this is not finding the path to peace to get Russia out of Ukraine. And so we say we're defending Ukraine, but actually Ukraine is being destroyed in this process in the name of something that isn't defending the country at all and isn't solving any problems and is creating an increasingly severe global economic crisis. Now, I didn't play the question that led to that answer, but uh, Jeffrey Sachs on NATO expansion to Finland. It would be so reckless and provocative halfway around the world. It, you know, so he goes into what we just talked about. Uh -huh. So when Kirby was talking about NATO expansion, that's the wrong thing to do. NATO should be dismantled. NATO should be thrown out. Uh, Russia should have been brought in close to the vest. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. We could have brought, uh, we could have changed over an enemy that has all kinds of natural resources that would be good for the world and good for their own prosperity and good to create an alliance with another nuclear superpower. But no, they didn't want to do it because they've been at odds with Russia ever since they were stealing oil for the last 20 years out of Iraq, running oil, uh, Saddam Hussein's oil after we killed him, up into Europe through Syria and Turkey and running it south into Af Africa. But in order to do that, we got rid of the toll collectors in Gaddafi and Mubarak in Egypt and Libya. So, I mean, this is what's going on. This is an ugly business of greed and profit in the black market. And we actually paid off ISIS to be mercenary groups to protect those oil fields until Trump came along. And he withdrew our troops from Syria, and he says, we're going to watch the oil. We no longer have ISIS to do it, so we'll do it. Yeah. And he got rid of ISIS in four weeks. That's what this was all about, folks. The whole Benghazi thing was a mission that was making politicians like Lindsey Graham and John McCain at the time profitable, uh, rich. And they were laundering weapons for um, – they were sending weapons to Ukraine – and then they would come down into the Middle East and they would trade for oil and it would be a whole pay-to-play scheme where taxpayers were footing the bill for everything. We thought we were buying blankets and pillows, but no, we were actually buying mercenary uh, enforcement from ISIS in order to protect the oil field so that these oligarchs and these globalists could get rich. And everything was paid for, not by anybody, but you. True. And that's the sad truth. That is the ugly, ugly business that we've been seeing. So 
getting back to Afghanistan, um, Brian Kilmeade had an interview today that I thought was pretty good uh, with regard to this, since it's the hot topic of the day. I mean, we're not going to talk about the insurrection that happened on Tennessee, and they voted to expel two two uh, of the three, and now they're trying to make that a race card because three were people were on the chopping block, and one white woman and two black guys. The two black guys basically got expelled, and the white woman got uh, didn't get expelled. She escaped with just one vote, but she didn't do the same same aggression that the two black guys did with the megaphones and stuff. And in any case, it was decorum. It was whatever. They could also vote them back in at some point. But you can't have chaos, especially in the woke manner that they did. Riley Gaines, for example, was given a speech, and she got attacked by the the trans terrorists. Yeah, we saw her at the uh, Independent Women's Network event. Yeah, but she was given a speech at, at some school and got attacked and assaulted. And it's because of these uh, this trans aggression. And it's just absolutely ridiculous. Walk out this whole Afghanistan press Afghanistan conference we witnessed story. yesterday. You know, the Biden House uh, White House review of the deadly uh, exit from Afghanistan, which they say was great. He's laying almost all the blame on former President Trump. Let's take a look at the report and what President Biden said about the withdrawal. I mean, first off, one of the claims, and we're going to go over it in detail. Uh, no one predicted, we can go back, uh, go back again. Uh, no one predicted during the trend. Uh, no one predicted the collapse of the Afghan army, uh, August 19, 2021. The reality, the military and all intel officers said, if you get down to a certain uh, threshold when it comes to troops, we're going to have trouble holding the country. And there were some signs that they're losing half the country already when they were still debating what they were going to do in August. The claim military advisors did not urge uh, urge him to keep 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. The reality, top general advised keeping several thousand troops in Afghanistan, holding on to Bob Graham Air Base, because keep in mind, you had 7,000 NATO troops there. So together, they had enough to sustain the force and maybe give this war a chance for a soft landing or a transition and a government to hold itself. After all, technically, they had hundreds of thousands of troops between uh, the police and between the military. And finally, in the last uh, in the last visit, in the last wall visit, we have this: the Afghan fund. They have money. It's frozen because the Taliban promised to do certain things in order to unfreeze those funds. They've done almost none of it. Our people, our allies, and some Americans are still there. So they have 3.5 million frozen Afghan assets. And guess what? They're going to start using them. They're going to start getting hold of some of those funds. Let's expand on what we learned with uh, now retired. Lieutenant Colonel C.J. Douglas. Great to see you, Colonel. Good to see you. What role did you have in the after-action report of uh, the Afghanistan operation? So, Brian, I was part of the Central Command uh, AR-15-6 investigation that looked into the actions before, during, and after the attack at Abbey Gate. Where were you during the exit? During the exit, for part of the time, I was in Tampa down at Marine Central Command. And then for the remainder of it, I was in Qatar assisting with the evacuation. Well, would you say, when you, when you see... When when you see Cutter, when you see Cutter, that's where you were. Yes. Uh, was that chaotic? It was chaotic, and I mean, you have to remember that uh, they received that that cha- that that uh, iconic picture of the um, plane filled with Afghans, which was about 800. That that landed in in Cutter, and so uh, and and those people all got processed through there, and it was uh, it, 
It was chaotic. There were people, you had to scrape human remains off the wheel wells when those planes landed, right? I did not, but uh, service members did. When Austin and, Bl- uh, and Blinken showed up to see the operations in uh, Qatar, they saw hangars that were organized. They chose not to go to the place. There was total chaos. So I can say in their defense in this, they were steered towards hangars that were prepared for their view. What they were unaware of was the, the absolute chaos that was created by putting all the personnel that were in the hangars that they saw into other right. hangars, and that created additional chaos. So here's what John, a little bit about John Kirby said yesterday. Let's listen. And so for all this talk of chaos, I just didn't see it. Not from my perch. At one point during the evacuation, there was an aircraft taking off full of people, Americans and Afghans alike, every 48 minutes. And not one single mission was missed. So I'm sorry, I just won't buy the whole argument of chaos. It was tough in the first few hours. You would expect it to be. There was nobody at the airport, certainly no Americans. It took time to get in there. Do you agree? I disagree completely, and and I can say that, um, you know, while I've got great respect for uh, for Mr. Kirby, um, he came in late during the the briefing that we gave the Secretary of Defense, so maybe he missed some of the images and videos that we showed the SecDef, um, you know, post uh, return from Qatar. So you say, as of late of May of 2021, the assessment was still that Kabul would probably not come uh, not come under serious pressure until late 2021. That's the uh, that's the claim. What do you say about that? I, I say that's ridiculous because, I mean, anybody who was watching the news uh, saw the increase of uh, Taliban uh, encirclement of the provincial capitals and district centers throughout Afghanistan and ultimately tightening the noose around Kabul and to, to the point that, you know, it, it didn't take a student of military history to see what, the, what they were getting ready to execute. The decision to notify coalition partners that were preparing for, uh, for the NEO ended up being a tremendous mistake and resulted in a chaotic evacuation. What do you mean by that? The, um, could you, the, you said, he, they write, yeah. wait, uh, after the entire south of Afghanistan had flown to the Taliban to declare the NEO on August 14th, either started months earlier when we still control, you should have started months earlier. Right, and so it should have started much earlier. I mean, you know, let, let's be honest. I mean, if, if it was, hey, we're going to withdraw, you know, the president himself had made this uh, reflection upon Iraq saying it would take a year to get all the personnel and equipment out. It would take seven months if we left everything and our grandchildren would ultimately pay the price for those weapons. Was the president and the first lady calling in to Kabul Airport, uh, 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 Hamid Karzai Airport, demanding certain VIPs get in. From our interviews, what we found was the senior leadership all the way down to the lower levels were receiving calls from the president, the first lady, the administration, um, general officers, flag officers, and uh, elected officials. Was the State Department drinking the night before they were leaving, having a party, an exit party, uh, in the embassy? As a result of the investigation, what we learned was personnel saying it physically took service members, U.S. service members, to go door-to-door to pull personnel from the embassy out of their room rooms at the time of the evacuation was called. Was there a plan left for President, uh, for President Biden? I mean, let's, let's be honest. The, you know, the, as far as DOD is concerned, they were working a plan. Um, but when, you know, the, uh, and that's well before the 14th of August. I mean, but you know, whether or not there was a plan that, you know, I think you've said it before. I mean, ultimately, 
the decision to leave and to follow the Trump established timeline rests solely on the administration. I mean, we've seen that he's, uh, you know, he had the ability as the president. He, the original plan was to leave one May. They moved it to September 11th. It was backed up to the, uh, the 1st of September and ultimately the 31st U.S. forces were out. So to say that, uh, you know, that there was no plan. DOD personnel, Central Command personnel, were, were rapidly planning to coordinate and execute an evacuation. Um, this, is out, this is outrageous, which is... It's outrageous. Right. It is and, and inaccurate. Inaccurate. All right, Colonel, I'll talk to you later. So Kirby just does nothing but lie. Uh, so here, here's another little clip. Uh, let's take a listen. Um, the report says uh, the Trump administration's four years of neglect, including a deliberate degradation, left Afghanistan operations in despair. Could you be specific about deliberate degradation? What are you specifically referring to? So he goes into this whole diatribe blaming mm-hmm. Trump. Trump had a plan. Yeah, uh, He had um, been working with this exit strategy in Afghanistan for over a year. Yeah. And this was well planned. And uh, Kirby just lied to the American people. Well, that's enough of that. Um, Speaking of the Nord Stream 2, uh, Claire Daly, over at the uh, Member of European Parliament, had this to say about the United States Cy Hirsch report and the um, oil spill that these climate enthusiasts mm-hmm. don't give two cents about. They don't care about the environment when it comes to their own terror. Yeah. I, I welcome the measures to tackle the depletion of the ozone, and I voted for the file. But while that's all well and good, there is a huge contradiction between our statements here and the fact that the biggest methane emission ever, with huge consequences for the ozone, took place last September with the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipelines. A devastating act of sabotage on EU infrastructure, and nobody in the EU has anything to say about it. Neither do we want to do anything about it. Seymour Hirsch produces a very credible report that the US was responsible, along with Norway, then U.S. intelligence come up with nonsense that it was a pro-Ukrainian non-state group. Come on. We don't need leaks from the people who brought us the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We need answers. And that the U.N. Security Council and the two European members failed to support the call for an independent investigation into the explosion this week is absolutely scandalous. If we want to protect the ozone, we have to have some consistency in our policies. You know, the the United States lost all credibility around the world, and that's what's killing us. That's what's going to cause us to lose our dollar. Um, this is a big, huge problem. We're a banana republic. You got the Biden crime family receiving millions of dollars from CCP companies, Chinese Communist Party companies. Let's take a listen to um, Epoch Times representative talking about what the House Oversight Committee is finding about the Biden crime family. The name that people were calling Biden, Beijing Biden, is becoming basically, uh, it's being proven true. Red State had this story. They say even CNN admits things are not looking good for Biden 
and then Comer drops even more damning information. They say, as we reported, the House Oversight Committee says it now has evidence showing that the Biden family received more than a million dollars in relation to a payout from a Chinese company with ties to the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. An RNC research noted a Biden associate gets $3 million from a Chinese-based company and then proceeds to wire it out to a bunch of people named Biden, says CNN's Aaron Burnett. That doesn't look good. Let me show you this video. On a certain level, just as a layperson, you hear this, and it doesn't sound good. Uh, there's a guy whose name is uh, John Robinson Walker. He gets $3 million from a Chinese-based company and proceeds to wire it out to a bunch of people named Biden one of whom is Hunter Biden, another one is a company that belongs to the president's brother, James Biden, and another amount of money to Beau Biden's uh, widow, Hallie. So again, from a layperson, that doesn't look good. And Town Hall said this, Comer believes nearly a dozen more business dealings occurred between the Biden family and China. This is one of the things that people are not talking about, which should be the biggest story in the country, frankly. Well, frankly, he's wrong about that. I think that the biggest story in the country is the devaluation of the dollar. Um, to me, th- that's a, a big deal. I also think that this new release uh, launch um, that's going to occur in July um, with the Fed now, the Federal Reserve is going with this central bank digital currency. Um, I think that's a that's a major problem. Um and uh, and there's a new report right here because remember the eighty billion, eighty seven thousand IRS agents. We all thought, you know, everybody was, uh, you know, getting lost in the shuffle there and saying, well, they're going to audit the middle class. No, that wasn't what it was about. Now, from what I understand, one of the first things that the hundred eighteenth Congress this twenty twenty three did was defund the IRS so that they can't roll that out. That's what I thought. But here we got this breaking news story. The IRS is hiring 30,000 more staff as they deploy $80 billion in new funding. Your tax dollars are going to the government so they can use that money to take more of your tax dollars. That's true, but what they're doing is they're rolling out the central bank digital currency. That's what the army is all about. That's what the army of IRS agents is all about, is what I should say. And Fed now from the Federal Reserve, which is actually going bankrupt itself, is um, behind it. And it's scary because, again, in a globalist world, you have all of these different little things that are happening simultaneously. And... Uh, and that's why, you know, this um, Lagarde woman uh, is talking about rolling out in October a digital euro. Let's take a listen. This is going to happen in October. I have a question about I'm, I'm also a good um, user of uh, electronic money. All right. So European Central Bank. President Christine Lagarde reveals plans to launch a digital euro. CBDC says there will be control over payments. It's going to be decided as early as October 2023 for a digital euro implementation. Again, they're going to own your own money. You're never going to have you're going to, you're going to own nothing and be happy is what Klaus Schwab said. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't agree with that little turkey. 
So my question, uh, you're in introducing the electronic euro, as I know. Yeah. So yeah. How, can I, um, how can switching to an electronic currency help? Well, two things. Number one, it will be decided in October. So we are preparing the ground. We want to be ready. Um, we want to be trained, but it will not be decided until October 23. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm personally convinced that we have to move ahead is a situation like the one we are in now. We are mm -hmm. dependent on the supply of gas by a, a very unfriendly country. Mm -hmm. I don't want Europe to be dependent on an unfriendly country's currency, for instance, I don't know, you know, the Chinese currency, the Russian currency, the mm -hmm. whatever, mm -hmm. or dependent on a friendly currency, but which is activated by a private corporate entity like, you know, Facebook or like uh, Google or anybody like that. I'm a user of Bitcoin too, so... I had bought it uh, when it started, and uh, I, I hope that uh, it also will work in through the special system. And uh, I know there are many protests in Europe uh, against uh, the electronic euro. Uh, mm -hmm. What is the reason? You know, it's it's the beauty of Europe. It has different uh, positions. If you ask. In Northern Europe, for instance, uh, in the Netherlands, they're quite happy to see the e-euro coming. If you ask a young German um, man, he'll say, yeah, fine. Mm. As I said, I don't want Meta, Google or Amazon to suddenly come up with a currency that would take over the sovereignty of Europe. I don't want a foreign currency to become the currency of trading within Europe. So we have to be ready. No, the problem is they don't want to be controlled. Uh, they don't want to... Uh... Yeah, but you know what? You know what? Now we have in Europe this threshold. Above 1,000 euros, you cannot pay cash. If you do, you're on the grey market. You take mm -hmm. your risk. You get caught, you are fined, or you go in jail. But, you know, the the... the Digital euro is going to have a limited amount of control. There will be control. You're right. You're completely right. Mm -hmm. We are considering whether for very small amounts, you know, anything that is around 300, 400 euros, we could have a mechanism where there is zero control. But that could be dangerous. The terrorist attacks on France uh, back uh, 10 years ago were entirely financed by those very small anonymous credit cards that you can recharge in total anonymity. Couple of takeaways there. She doesn't sound like she has a clue as to how this is gonna <laughs> go out. True. And number two, um, she talks about political adversaries, unfriendlies. Well, these unfriendlies could have been friendlies. Right. There was a way to create diplomacy to make Russia, like I said, Trump wanted to bring Russia into G7 and make it a G8. China could have been um, – uh, Trump was working on a phase one, phase two, phase three rollout of uh, honest and, and equitable trade with China. But greed came in and corruption and politicians 
wanted to play uh, in the black market and made adversaries out of these these nuclear powered powerful uh, countries like China and Russia. And now they decided, and not only that, but the United States also was misusing its dollar as a sanctioning tool, a weapon. If you don't go woke, we'll sanction you. If you don't embrace trans or DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, or if you don't embrace climate initiatives, if you pull out of Paris, we'll sanction you. And we all know that the Paris Agreement is all about slave labor. We know that climate is equal to slave labor because it's basically saying it's illegal for the West to manufacture, but it's legal for developing nations to manufacture. And we're going to call China a developing nation so they can go ahead and create all kinds of manufacturing with the Belt and Road Initiative and supply chains that make Mitch McConnell's wife, Elaine Chow, and her shipping company, Foremost Group, super wealthy. So the politicians are directly involved in greenlighting these deals because it makes them super rich. Just like the Biden initiative, giving taxpayer dollars to Canadian EV builders, electric vehicles, subsidizing these electric vehicle purchases so that the demand of electric vehicles and battery manufacturing can go up. Meanwhile, we know that the Biden uh, crime family is heavily invested with Chinese money in not only the mining company Freeport McMorrin out of Arizona-based it's mining in the Congo, but also Emperex, the other battery manufacturing company out of China. And so, again, they're going to benefit by putting out of business the one thing that could actually put them out of business, which is oil. Because if the playing field was fair and equal and they just stayed out of it, electric wouldn't even be a thing right now because nobody really wants the electric car. They're being forced into it. 2030, you're going to be banning you know, all this stuff. And we're only at 20% and we don't have enough electricity. It's going nowhere fast. There's no future for this electric grid. And by the way, even if there is a future, it takes coal. It's dirty. The mining of uh, cobalt is dirty as a dirty slave-run business. And that's what climate is all about. It's all about slaves. It's all about slave labor. This carbon, and, and it's all about control. Because they're pushing... All of the manufacturing to developing nations, in air quotes, and they don't care because they're going to generate just as much pollution as is if manufacturing was to go around the world. But because we're over-educated, over-latted, over-Starbucksed, and, and just over, uh, we're afraid to get our hands dirty in America and in Europe, in the West. Over-manicured. Over-manicured, spoiled, over-educated. And going woke, uh, no one's going to get their hands dirty. And if they do, they're not going to do it for less than $20 an hour. Well, there's a guy in China that will, uh, there's a child in China that will work for $20 a day. And so therein lies the, the uh, initiative. 
It's called greed. It's profit. And these Fortune 500 companies, these multinational corporations that show their allegiance to BlackRock because BlackRock owns them, and they show their allegiance to the World Economic Forum and the annual Davos meeting where these corporations hobnob and get along with with uh, their uh, high-priced hookers to get along in Switzerland, the most, one of the richest places in the world, to make sure that they secure these deals at the table, that the small mom-and-pop shops in, in uh, middle-class USA don't have access to. And they're basically just being dictated to by these multinational corporations that are benefiting from the slave labor out of these developing nations and profiting from it, flying around in their private jets, eating their steaks while you're going to eat bugs and insects. That's what's going on, man. Oh, that was Biden. That sounds a little too much like Biden, doesn't it? Yeah, come on, man. So the Biden, there's another little wrinkle. Biden aide Kathy Chung refutes classified docs, locked closet spin uh on Comer. So bank records were obtained, reveal Rob Walker, a Biden family associate, used his company to transfer money from a Chinese energy company to Hunter Biden, James Biden. We just heard that. But also now there's this Kathy Chung refutes classified docs locked closet thing, which is kind of interesting because we're hearing more and more reports of this. Let's take a listen. Yeah, I mean, we're serious about this. This is something that uh, the Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, issued a statement today. I fully expect to see Alvin Bragg answering questions in front of Congress as soon as we can uh, make it happen. Uh, This is unacceptable, and we're not going to back down on this. I saw something today that you deposed one of Joe Biden's little assistants, Ms. Chung, and Mm -hmm. asked her about how she was squirreling documents all over D.C. What did you learn about Biden hiding classified documents? Yeah, we learned a lot today. And remember, there are two investigations oversight committee uh, that Jim Jordan's on as well uh, that were conducting Joe Biden, the influence peddling and also his mishandling of classified documents. We brought Kathy Chung in today for a transcribed interview. And I want to thank Ms. Chung publicly for working and cooperating with our committee and answering questions. We learned a lot. First of all, we learned uh, that uh, the documents didn't just uh, start mysteriously moving around in December of 2022 or November of 2022, like the White House has alleged, she said this dates back to May of 2022, that the documents were moved from the vice presidency to at least three different locations in a personal vehicle. Oh. And why they were in three different locations, we don't know. They weren't stored behind any lock. One of the locations was in Chinatown. Chinatown. Another location was in the Penn Biden Center, which might as well have been Chinatown by looking at where their money was coming from. And that the White House has never been honest with the American people. Remember, we never would have found out about this uh, in March of 2023 if someone hadn't leaked it. To the press that Biden was mishandling classified documents. So the White House thing came back and said, yeah, that happened in November, December of 2022. She just testified under oath that it happened in May of 2022. Mm. So there are more questions today than we've ever had. And this is ironically what the special counsel is apparently going after Trump next over the next supposed indictment is going to be over his mishandling of classified documents. Look at what Joe Biden's done. 
We don't know how many locations he has. We don't know what those documents were. We're very suspicious that his son sent one of those in an email to Ukraine to his buddies at Burisma. And yet we don't get any truthfulness out of the White House. This is another example of a two-tiered system of justice in America. All right. So to summarize, President Biden okayed the raid on Mar-a-Lago for classified documents, knowing he had sketchy classified documents. And they were in Chinatown brought by Miss Chung. Got it. All right. (laughs) Yeah, you can't make this stuff up, right? There's comedy everywhere you turn. I wanted to just wrap up uh, with um, also something that Stephen Miller, a guy I really think is super smart, um, he had an interview and he, he had this to say about the the persecution of President Trump that I thought we would kind of close the book on. Uh, I know it's last week's story, but still, nevertheless, let's take a well, That's exactly right. And even repressive foreign adversaries of the United States, if they were going to persecute a chief political rival, would create a far more plausible and credible yes. pretext for doing so. What's so remarkable, Tucker, is that the Manhattan DA's office felt completely confident that if they charged President Trump without even naming the law that he broke, that there would be no consequences for them, for their office, or anyone in their employ. They could continue on their merry way, become rich and famous, have wonderful careers, and practice law to great esteem all over the country and probably get some great book deals in the process. And the worst part is, Tucker, they're almost certainly correct in that assumption. Well, that's that's the scariest part. I mean, if they'd accused him of murder or fentanyl dealing, you know, opening the southern border and letting 100,000 Americans die of drug ODs or, you know, actual crimes, at least you would understand why he was indicted. But you're right. This is just they, they don't care what it looks like. Yeah, the reality, Tucker, is that we've entered an era now where our system of law has been completely overtaken by radical left-wing warriors who use the law as an instrument to extract political consequences and to inflict political pain on their opponents. So our, our legal system has become completely tribalized and radicalized. This is something that George Washington warned about way back in his farewell address. So, you know, right there, um, you could say, okay, well, that's exactly what they did with election fraud. They knew they had to win or they were going to lose everything. So they didn't care what it looked like. But like I had said, they planned for this. They planned for this day because Soros was hiring all these district attorneys to turn a blind eye to what they knew was going to be the crime of the century, which was this unbridled election fraud. And then they were just going to go after uh, with the same Soros DAs. They were going to go after these political adversaries. And they were going to lock them all up and get rid of them. And they don't care what it looks like because they know that the libtards on the left are, are pretty stupid people. And they'll vote left no matter what. They have no scruples. They have no ethics. They have no, no principles. They just want to win. And they want the power. And they want everybody to subscribe to their gender, to their pronoun, to their whatever. And that's exactly what's going on right now. And like Ned Bryan said, until we start playing rough and tough and giving them a dose of their own medicine, we are never going to win this fight. We have people in power that can do the same thing. If a banana republic is what you want, a banana republic is what you're going to get. 
And it's just that simple. Meanwhile, one last story before we head over to Literary Corner yes. is we are losing um, our dollar as quickly as you can you know, account for it. It's, a, it's called the de-dollarization. While everyone's distracted about all this other stuff, the dollar is dying. The de-dollarization has begun. And that starts with BRICS. And all of these things were parts of our foreign policy where we actually pushed our adversaries into a polarized position to where they are going to dominate us. Because the Western banking systems are collapsing. And there's going to be really no room for the Federal Reserve to fix this problem of inflation, especially as oil prices increase and make it doubly di- difficult for the Fed to control get inflation to 2%. And so it's going to be a real nightmare um, because the national debt across the board, uh, not just the federal debt, but the personal debt um, and the commercial real estate market, all of these things are very much struggling. One final thing. Twitter files, top Democrats peddled false Russian bots narrative about Nunes' memo despite Twitter warnings. Twitter officials called Adam Schiff and others uh, congressional trolls for pushing fake bots narrative about release the memo hashtag. That's something that's trending over on Twitter. It probably doesn't apply to a lot of people, but basically uh, they were blaming Russia bots for a release the memo hashtag that it turned out the Democrats perpetrated. It's sort of like Jesse Smollett uh, uh, all over again, right? Yeah, it's MAGA country. You know, they did it. Uh, Trump did it. And it's they're doing it. They're, they're doing this false charade and blaming Trump. They're, they're blaming Trump for Afghanistan. They're blaming Trump for uh, any kind of racism they, they themselves are mustering up, whether it's Jesse Smollett or Bubba Wallace in the uh, noose. The FBI is behind a lot of this stuff and it's just absolutely insane that we're living in a country that's this nuts but in any case we have literary corner we have dickens to talk about yes. now and so leonore yes yeah, so we're going to talk for a couple minutes about charles dickens the british novelist who was born in 1812 and died in 1870 now scott and you and i talk a lot about dickens because he wrote a christmas carol yes which i think was made into films and uh television and radio episodes something like over 135 times i, yeah. I heard a statistic like that so it's a very well-known story but he he is very known for his art stories and novels about people who suffered, people who spent time in orphanages or the court system. And, and, and that it's based on his early experience as a child. He came from a middle class background, but because his father went bankrupt, he had to go and work while before he completed elementary school. So he basically ended up leaving school at 15. So he had this experience of working in hard conditions as a child. And then and he also became familiar with the court system. And then he started writing. And, and all of those experiences shaped his worldview of the harshness of society, and that's reflected in stories like A Christmas Carol. One, um, one of the books that uh, I really like that Dickens wrote, and of course he's written so many amazing books, A Tale of Two Cities, Oliver Twist, uh, Martin Chuzzlewit, all these stories, but I really like the book 
Great Expectations. And this is the one that has been made into films a number of times. The basic premise is you have a character named Pip, a young boy who's living with his uncle, and he helps a convict. Uh, you know, he kind of unwittingly helps the convict. He doesn't realize, I, I don't think he completely realizes he's a convict. But then later on, the convict, his name is Magwitch, uh, makes money and he becomes Pip's silent benefactor. So he he is behind the scenes helps Pip to rise in in a, in a higher station in life, etc. And you know, Scott, you and I really like these social climber type stories. Yes. Well, this one has all all the same makings. Where basically, what happens is when Pip finds out who his benefactor is, he you know he's embarrassed and resentful, and that all comes out in the story. Now. This uh, book, Great Expectations, is considered one of Dickens' most popular, and it was made into film something like 10 times. And one of the versions that I really like is a contemporary version of it that was made in 1998, which starred Ethan Hawke and Gwyneth Paltrow and Anne Bancroft and Robert De Niro. And in that, they, they kind of changed the names of the characters, and Pip is no longer a blacksmith apprentice. He's an architect, and his name is Finn. But the premise is the same. And so it, so I highly recommend that people read um, Dickens and particularly read Great Expectations and check out uh, this film from 1998. I, I also want to draw people's attention to an article I wrote earlier this year about it was based on a book review. Uh, the book was called The Turning Point, 1851, A Year That Changed Dickens and the World. And this um, article was interesting because the book that I spoke about essentially was a little bit of a a harbinger of globalism Hmm. because they talked about the um, the world this exhibition that took place the in London the 1851 great exhibition and it what you know and the book is about how it 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 transformed the globe but all and transformed Dickens writing but what was very interesting about the book is there was a lot of negative reaction at the time with the concept of people just coming in to Europe and you know the while they were trying to package it as a celebration of all nations you know they it was it was a world's fair you had all these different booths they were trying to package it as let's become culturally aware at the time, there was a tremendous amount of resentment about this happening. So it's very interesting because there's a parallel to what's going on in our world right now. Hmm. Great. And what's the name of the article that you wrote, and how can people uh, get in touch with that right. article? The name of the article was 1851, The Dawn of a New World Order, or Was It Just Another Year? And it's at, you visit spectator.org, and you look under my name, Leonora Cravota, and you'll find it. And you're listed as one of the authors? I'm or? one of the authors. I'm about the sixth to seventh page person down on the, on the front page. Okay. That sounds great. Well, I want to thank everyone for tuning in today to the Scott Adams Show. And uh, be sure to check out magapac.org, magapac.org, to find out how we're advancing America First policies to make America great again. Uh, also, our parent 501c3, buglecall.org. Also, use Red State over at MyPillow as your promo code. That's Red State. And with that, my name is Scott Adams. My name is Leonora Cravetta. Happy Easter. Happy Passover. All right. And we'll see you next time on the radio. Bye-bye, everybody. But both of them now see this mess. 
Where I stand, the mound's getting steeper. I grab a shovel, dig the hole a little deeper. Just to bury my kids right up to there.